Hello, it's good to see your faces. Hope you had a great 4th of July. Hope you uh, were able to barbecue and see friends and family and enjoy yourself. I don't know what your traditions are. I have a tradition that I've been doing for several years now. And I like to, I like to pick up a, a historical book or a book about American history and just kind of read through it over the 4th of July season. And this year, I read one by uh, Dr. David Bob, and the name of it is Humility, an Unlikely Bio of a Biography of America's Greatest Virtue. Humility, and an Unlikely Biography of America's Greatest Virtue. It's kind of an interesting perspective. What the author does is he takes this idea of humility and he weaves it through... Um, uh, the lives of many uh, of our um, presidents, of our leaders. So, for example, there's George Washington and Abigail Adams and Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, and, and they use the idea of humility to weave through the fabric of America, and they talk about how in terms of leadership historically, humility is the piece that is most needed and is often the piece that is forgotten. In the book, uh, Dr. Bob talks through what humility is, and he gives a simple definition, a dictionary definition, a modest view of self is what he says. And I found that really interesting because he spends about a half a chapter defining what modesty is. Many times we think of modesty as what we wear or what we shouldn't wear. Uh, Modesty is almost exclusively used in that way in our culture. But he had a different definition, a more clear definition. And I wanted to share it with you. This is what he says about modesty. It's not an underestimate of oneself but rather restraint against the inordinate desire for recognition. Again, not an underestimate of oneself, but rather restraint against the inordinate desire for recognition. In other words, we do things because we know that it's the right thing to do. Whoa, that scared me. Did you see me jump? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm edgy today, I guess. <laughs> uh, In other words, we're not looking for uh, a need to be recognized, but we're willing to serve in the situation, within the situation that we live in, and we're going to flesh that out in our time together. We're going to walk through the Proverbs and talk through some of those passages, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Philippians. I was less jumpy that time. Let's try something. There we go. Think. Are we better? No? We'll find out. All right, spend some time in prayer. Maybe if, if you want to get a handheld ready for me, that'd be great. Thanks. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you and praise you. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be exalted and lifted up. We need you. And as we come together and we talk about this issue of humility, what we're really talking about is how you lived it out, how you modeled it. And so we're asking today, Lord, that you would show us, that you would show us in a very real way how to walk with you, how to live in you, and how to respond in faith, Lord, to you. We love you, Almighty God. We thank you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus Christ's precious 
and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. There are some there's some context I want to build a framework around before we jump into humility and talk about it. I want to talk about some current issues that maybe influence or color uh, our view of humility. So here are a few of many uh, current issues that we struggle with. Here's the first one. Being authentic as the highest virtue. In other words, if I'm just being authentic, then I can pretty much get away with anything. <laughs> I can justify any behavior. But we know almost from right from the very beginning of that statement, we recognize that we can be authentic and we can be wrong. We could be authentically wrong. Uh, that, that is certainly true. However, within our culture, we talk about this uh, we, we want to be authentic. We want to, this is just how I'm made. This is who I'm made to be. I'm just being who I am. And we have to be really careful with that because when it's under the authority of Scripture, that can be a beautiful thing. But outside of the authority of Scripture, that can be a really bad thing. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> so my mother was the disciplinarian in my home. Uh, she loved us. She also let us know where our boundaries were and to not go near the boundaries. And she had creative ways of doing that with respect to discipline. So I want you to imagine a scenario that is a very real scenario as I was growing up. I was the oldest. It's, it's myself and my brother. I'm about two and a half years older than my brother. And when I was 10 years old, this happened on multiple uh, occasions. I began to have a conversation with my brother and decided to start picking on my brother. I didn't think of it in those terms in those days. I just thought I was being a big brother. And uh, he started getting agitated. And he started to get aggravated. And before I knew it, he's kicking the seat in front of him, who happens to be my mom's seat. And he's yelling, Kitty, will leave me alone. So here's what I want you to imagine. My mom turns around and I'm confident that being authentic is the highest virtue. And I say something like this, Mom, I'm just being me. I was created this way to pick on my brother. It's just who I am, Mom. In fact, Mom, you made me, so this is kind of more your fault than mine. <laughs> I want you to imagine, yeah, you're already catching on. I might say that once. I would never say that twice. This is not going to happen. Uh, but that's the idea here. We see it lived out in several places throughout the scriptures, but one that I think is, is good for us to be reminded of is with Jezebel in the Old Testament. Jezebel is a, a Phoenician princess who becomes a queen in Israel, married to Ahab. And Jezebel grows up under this uh, uh, theological perspective that... Uh, temple prostitution is okay, is a highest form of worship, and that the God of Israel is bad. So she grows up under that kind of leadership, and she's just being authentic to herself. She isn't really a people person, we find out throughout scriptures, and doesn't really put up with people very well, has no problem threatening them. And to Jezebel, if she's just being authentic to herself, then you would think good outcomes. But that's not what happens. 
she's being authentic to herself, and there are really bad things, bad things that happen to Israel, but also bad things that happen to her. There are consequences, even when we're being authentic. So being authentic outside of the authority of Scripture is a problem. Here's the next one. Let your heart lead you. Anyone ever heard this? Just let your heart lead you. Whatever your, your heart is telling what is your heart telling you to do? Then do that. Okay, that's a popular thing, so let's look at it with respect to Scripture, and then we'll talk about it. So in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. What is? The heart. Let your heart lead. I don't know. According to this passage, that doesn't sound like a great idea. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the New Testament, Mark chapter 7 says it this way. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So let me speak to that just real quick, because I I think this is important. In church history, there is a movement within the first 300 years called the monastic movement. And the monastic movement, what was happening is the world was really starting to affect and infect the church. So a group of people said it would be better for us to be away than we wouldn't be tempted by Uh, society's ills and influences, and we could be a pure church. So that was the idea that was, and I'm simplifying it, I recognize that, but that's the idea. Through that time, there was a movement called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. The Desert Fathers and Mothers gave us a lot of literature. One of those things that came out of the Desert Fathers are the seven deadly sins. Anybody ever heard of the seven deadly sins? I won't ask you to repeat all seven, but you recognize that term, okay? That came from the Desert Fathers. Well, that's where it began. It, It came to us a little bit later, but that's where it began. But here's what the Desert Fathers and Mothers realized. They were out in the wilderness by themselves, and they would occasionally come together to worship. But they were primarily by themselves. And this is what they realized. They had no job, no money. And they generally ate the same food, which was porridge, or a type of porridge, daily. So that, that, that was their life. They studied the scriptures. And here's what they recognized. They have no money, but they're greedy. Well, that's, that's not because the world was influencing them. That's something from within. Uh, they weren't around members of the opposite sex, but they still struggled with lust. Okay, well, that wasn't because the world was influencing them. That was something from within that was a problem. Uh, They had porridge, and that's what they ate every day, and they still struggled with gluttony. So they recognized the truths of this, that the human heart is desperately wicked, and from within the human heart, There are some problems. I don't think that we're ever going to fully understand the damage that was done at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned, how that broke God's plan for his image in us. I don't think we're fully going to get the the idea until the other side of glory. And I think on, on the other side of glory, when we're in heaven, we'll go, oh, wow, that's not at all what we were thinking. Like, it's so different than God's plan. And we have to realize that. We have to reconcile that. So when we hear things like 
just follow your heart. We need to be careful. Again, that when, when we say that, are we saying that under the authority of the scriptures and God's word empowered by his spirit? Or are we just responding out of, out of flesh and the damage of the fall? Because if we're, if we're responding in the damage of the fall, there's just going to be continued damage that occurs. So we need to be careful. Third thing. And this one is a little bit trickier. Can, uh, you can do better. You know, like this is the term. And it's true. Like you, you can do better. It is way better than to, to uh, say something bad about someone than to go kill them. Right? Like that is way better to say something bad than to go kill them. At the same time, the human heart is desperately wicked, and we recognize we can do the right thing the wrong way, and it still be the wrong thing. Does that make sense? We can do the right thing, but do it the wrong thing, wrong with the wrong heart, the wrong intention, and it can still be the wrong thing. So the consequences are less, but the transformation hasn't occurred, because out of the human heart are some pretty vile things. With respect to our good deeds, they're not that great. So let's look at this. First John. First John chapter one says it this way. If we can say, if if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned, everyone's sinned, we get that. Okay? To say otherwise would be a lie. Can I do better? I don't know. I'm pretty damaged. Verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So who does the fixing in this? It's God, right? He's the one who's faithful. Uh, he's the one who forgives. He's the one who cleanses. He's the one who, gives, who offers righteousness. It's not us. It's not, uh, it's not our actions. Proverbs says it this way. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You can do better. Mm, can I? Like, in and of myself, can I do better? Uh, that's the question. That's the struggle. It, it, it's like this, and I'm, I'm just going to give you a hint, and we're going to deal with this in a little bit more detail later. And that's this. I think often in the West, we have this idea that we want a better version of ourselves. Like, like Christianity is kind of this religious self-help way to be better, a better version of myself. According to the passages that we've been reading, the best version of ourselves is still pretty messed up. I'm going to suggest to us that it's not a better version of ourselves that God is looking for. Keep that in mind as we move on. So does this mean that I shouldn't be proud of myself? So all of these things I've talked about, does this mean that I shouldn't be proud? Now, we say that a lot, like, oh, I, I hope you're proud of yourself. Or we say it in a negative light, right? Like, hope you're proud of yourself, as if being proud is a good thing. Well, when we look at the scriptures, we rarely see pride or proud as a positive thing. But there are a couple of places where it does have a, a, a better than neutral meaning. This is one of them in Galatians. It says, but let each one test his own work. Again, there's a bigger context around it, but we're, we're just going to get a bite size here. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So 
the idea here that, that maybe we'll accomplish a thing. So Paul is speaking to the church uh, in Philippi, and, uh, or I'm sorry, in Galatia, and he's saying, okay, well, yeah, maybe there, there is an act, a, an, a, a situation where you perform at a high level, and it's better to be proud of what you do than proud of, uh, of people just giving you stuff. So that's kind of the emphasis here. But then Paul clarifies just a few verses later, about 10 verses later, he says it this way. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, he's saying, okay, maybe, maybe there's an incident where, yeah, you could, you, could, you could be proud of that. But let me tell you, here's where I'm standing. And where I'm standing is going to be God. Because God's never going to mess it up. We can be proud in the work that God has done uh, in that he died on the cross for our sins. In that he conquered sin and death. That he rose from the grave. That he gives life to anybody who called on him, who calls on him. We can be proud of that work. So this is the idea. We have this matter of humility. And we have this matter of pride or arrogance. Uh, in the scriptures, there doesn't really seem to be that much of a, a, a difference in pride and arrogance. We've, we've made those differences. That The book that I mentioned earlier by Dr. David Bob, he said it this way. He said that arrogance is being proud of something that you've never earned. And, and so, in other words, you're, you're being arrogant, but there's no reason for you to be arrogant. And that's how he defines it. That's probably a good definition, but it's not a biblical definition. So with that in mind, let's look at some scriptures together. These aren't going to appear on the screens today. So if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write these down supplementarily. If you brought your Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to Proverbs. We're going to be in a few places in Proverbs. Um, so you can go, go along with me as we move through these passages. I'm going to hit several pretty quick. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. This is what it says. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. This is God speaking. Uh, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. That's, those are God's words. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Again, this, this is God speaking about arrogance and pride. Skipping down a few verses to uh, verse 18. So Proverbs 16, 18 says it this way. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 12 says it this way. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So here we have this juxtaposition. What happens uh, with a proud heart and arrogant heart, uh, destruction. What happens with humility? Honor. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So pride, being proud, being lifted up, actually brings you low. And being low actually brings you up. It's an interesting word, this idea of humility. In English, it's associated with the word earth. And the reason that's important is because it has had this idea of being grounded or being to the ground. 
In other words, not up in the clouds, lofty. We're grounded. We're, we're right where we're supposed to be. We're on the ground. This is where I am. It's not being way up in the clouds where you're not supposed to be. That's, that's the idea of it. Let's look at a couple of more. Uh, let's look at Proverbs 22.4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. I'll say it one more time. The reward for humility, again, being low to the ground, being, being on the ground, the reward for that and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And then Proverbs 12, uh, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Sorry, parents, I didn't put that in there. That's, that's what the word says. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates a reproof is stupid. So uh, I'm sharing this to help us identify there is this reality that humility in Scripture is identified as a good thing, but pride and arrogance is identified as a bad thing. So with that in mind, if humility is good and Jesus is our example of humility, then how has Jesus modeled humility? Because as, as, as good as the word of God is, we also recognize that Jesus is the model. Jesus is what we're looking for. We want to identify how Jesus responded, and we want to follow Jesus in those places. That's the call of the Christian. That's why we're called Christians, Christ followers, right? So uh, how does Jesus do this? Well, we see some uh, examples throughout scriptures. We could look at the narrative in the Gospels, and, and we could pick out segments or, that are just uh, wonderful examples. But I really like the way that Philippians chapter 2 just kind of condenses those stories and, and gives us um, uh, really the, uh, the, the gospel in a nutshell. So uh, go ahead and turn there. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be going through the first eight verses. I'm going to, <clears throat> I'm going to read through it, and after I'm done reading it, we're going to identify some uh, elements of this passage that will help us with respect to humility and following Jesus. You ready? All right, here we go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy or bring it to a maturity by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I wonder if, as, as this was being read uh, in the early churches, which was the practice, people would gather together in the church and they'd read these letters and the congregation would stand and they'd read them out loud. I wonder if the early church, when they heard these things, being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, I, I wonder if their minds immediately went to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, make them one, as you and I are one, that the world may know that you sent me. That's the call of Christ in his prayer just before he goes to the cross. And, and in that prayer is a charge to the followers of Jesus to be one, as Jesus and the Father are one. And then the fruit of that is that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, they're seeing it lived out. 
to seeing it lived out. I wonder if their minds were taken to that prayer. I wonder if they were reminded in those moments that, hey, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can answer the prayer request of Jesus. I wonder if their minds went there because the word image here would certainly take them there. Continuing on, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll talk about that in just a few. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's quite a few things there. Let's identify them and let's, again, put a little bit of context around this. Um, This idea of humility and following Jesus in this humility. Look at others' interests. So that's, that's where it starts. If I could, because I just gave you a definition just a few moments ago about humility, that it's, it's being grounded, right? Like you are on the ground. Your head's not way up in the clouds. You are where you're at. Like this, this is the place for you on the earth. Okay, so that's the idea. The word picture I want to give you is this, of reaching down and pulling someone up of reaching down and pulling someone up. This seems to be the picture of humility as it's spelled out in Philippians chapter 2. Here's why. Jesus, uh, obviously humble, God in the flesh. But here's, here's what he does not do. There's no false humility there. In the Gospels, uh, Peter comes to Jesus and, and Jesus asks, who do you say I am? You You are the son of God. Who have we in heaven but you? And Jesus doesn't go, stop it. I'll quit that. Don't say that. Oh, he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't deny it. He recognizes this is who I am. Absolutely, that's who I am. This is where I belong. And where I am, I'm reaching down and I'm helping people join me. And we'll see that as we go. Look at others' interests. So from a place of humility... How can we help? How can we help? How can we help? This is the word picture. Now, I want to say that looking at our own interests is a good thing too. Uh, You should not just look at the interests of yourself, but look at the interests of others as well. I would say that salvation in part is uh, we recognize our need for it because of our self-awareness. Like, oh, I'm a sinner. Oh my goodness, no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I do, no matter how much I earn, no matter how many things I qualify for, I, I can't earn the salvation. I'm, I'm still so far away. And the trajectory that I'm going into right now is not a trajectory that gives honor to God. What do I have to do? Because I don't want to go to that place called hell, the place where the Bible says there's great weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to go there. I want to follow, I want to follow God. I want to go to where he has called me to, into his presence. I want to be there. Because we had self-awareness, we were able to identify that 
that we, we're not that great, that actually within our hearts there is sin, that within our actions we, we have wronged others, uh, we have hurt other people because of self-awareness, but we don't stay there as believers. We graduate to that next level of, okay, now how do we help others? What does that look like? Having the mind of Christ. Here's what I'd like you to do for the next 30 seconds about. In the next 30 seconds, I would like you to consider. You can write it down if you're a writer, if that helps you process. If you just want to think it, that's fine too. But over the next 30 seconds-ish, I would like you to consider, how do you get the mind of Christ? Like, Does it just magically happen when you say a prayer or when you're baptized? Or, like, How do you get the mind of Christ? I'm going to give you 30 seconds starting right now to consider that. Mark that go. Quietly. I don't have a watch up here, so I have no idea. Uh, I have no concept of time, to be honest with you. Uh, obviously, I'm <laughs> your pastor and preach long. So um, here's the deal. What were some of the things you came up with with have the mind of Christ? Shout those out. Read from the Bible. Yeah, we've we got to get in the Word. That's great. What else? Say that again. Yeah, invite him in. That's great. Surrender to Christ. Great. Prayer. Absolutely. Ask. Ask for it. Love. Yeah. Memorize scripture. Great. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is, this is how, I mean, yes, the Spirit of God can supernaturally put that in our brains. Absolutely, he could do that. The way that he generally seems to work is through his word. And us memorizing his word and being in fellowship with one another and uh, spending time in prayer and asking those things of the Lord and being obedient in those places. Great. Have the mind of Christ. Not equal to self. Not equal to self. God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, is what the passage says. So consider that for a second. God, in glory, comes to earth... He doesn't do this. I don't know if you guys heard or not, but I'm God in the flesh. And you should probably serve me. And you shouldn't say that. <laughs> he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't consider equality with God. In other words, he doesn't take his position as a position of authority and, and uh, oppress people with it. But he walks with them in that place. He walks alongside them. The God of glory coming to earth in humility. He doesn't deny his position, but he helps. Do you see it? Let's keep going. He emptied out self. Selfish ambition and conceit. He emptied that out. We see that in this passage as well. Uh, there is, he's fully God, fully man, but what he empties out isn't God. He empties out man. It's the practice that we have. Uh, earlier, I asked the question or made the comment uh, about a better version of ourselves. So oftentimes, I think in the West, we look at Christianity as a, oh, so I become better so that I can be a better me. And when I, when I look at Scripture, I don't see that. 
Like, Jesus didn't die on the cross for my sins so that Kenny will be better. That doesn't seem to be the point. But what we do see in Scripture is die to self. Be emptied out and be filled with the Spirit. Uh, we see that kind of language used. In other words, here's, here's another way. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not, I was made better in Christ so that I could be a better version of myself. Praise God. That's not what that passage says at all. Crucified. I'm dead and Christ is alive. And it's his will to live through me, even in this moment, even in these moments. So that means getting rid of selfish ambition and conceit. Continuing on, serve. I think there are two really great ways in the, in the Christian life, in the disciples' life, two great things that we can rely on and that we really need as we grow. The first one is fellowship. Vertical fellowship with God vertical, and horizontal fellowship with other believers. <clears throat> That's part of the reason that we have life groups, is so that, hey, we want to encourage people to be engaged with other believers so that we can be engaged with God. We want to be engaged with God so that we can be engaged with other believers. There's something that happens in that type of fellowship where we're getting the word, uh, we're praying for one another, we're iron sharpening iron sort of situation. Like that, That's a part of it, and that's a big piece. And then the other piece is serving. The other piece is serving. It's so concerning whenever, um, whenever we start looking at church as what we have and what we don't have and what others should do for us and what they're not doing for us. That's such a dangerous place to be. I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't take inventory from time to time. I'm not saying that we shouldn't evaluate what we do at our churches. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that service is what Jesus did. He, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve. It wasn't about being served, but about serving. And so we see in like manner, as we serve one another, there's spiritual growth that occurs. It's a beautiful thing. And we see that in this passage as we're talking about humility, reaching down and helping others up. Bound by human form. Jesus was bound by human form. We are bound by human form. Um, human form seems to help us to identify this reality. We're not going to live forever. Not in these bodies. We're reminded the older that we get that that's the reality that we live in. These bodies are going to go away. And one day we'll have a resurrected body and it'll be a beautiful thing and we'll live in eternity and I can't wait to shed this one and get the new one. That's going to be a great day. But in the meantime, I'm reminded of my amazing need for Christ. This, this form, this human form takes us there. <clears throat> I wasn't going to share this story, but I... I think I should. And it's the story of my friend Jacques. Uh, Jacques grew up during a time where being cool was, uh, you know, smoking cigarettes and, and fighting. And he had a lot to fight about because he was a twin. He was not just a twin, but he's kind of small. 
He wasn't just a twin and kind of small, but his sister's name was Jill. So if you were following Jacques and Jill, the teasing was Jack and Jill went up the hill and set him off. Little Irish guy ready to fight. He went into the Navy, enjoyed fighting there too. Uh, a tough guy. One of those guys that you just, you figure it out and you do it yourself. A self-made man ended up being a fireman for, I think, around 40 years before he retired. About 15 years before he retired, he met Jesus in a real way. Life-transformed kind of way. He had realized some areas that he hadn't been loving and serving his family. And he made it right. He found some areas in his life where at work he was cheating. So one of those was that he was supposed to live in the community that he served on the fire department in, but he didn't want to. Lots of reasons. He had great justification. He could do it all day long. But the rule was you were supposed to live in the community. When he became a believer, he said, you know what? I am tarnishing the name of Christ by justifying my own sin. The rule is this, and I need to follow that, so I'm going to. And at great cost to him, went back into the city uh, and served the remainder of his time there. Uh, Jacques was a self-made guy. Jesus met him in a powerful way. This week, Jacques had a stroke. Couldn't swallow, and they had to put a tube in. In the midst of that happening, Jacques got pneumonia. And if God doesn't do a work in the next 24 hours, Jacques is going to move on to glory. And here's the reality. Jacques's okay with that. He's good with that answer. And if you asked him, and there were so, several who asked him before he, um, uh, after his stroke, before he got pneumonia, Uh, And he said, I'm ready. I can go see my Jesus and know that I know that I know that I'm going to see him because I've walked with him. Jacques a great example of humility. The question that, that we have as we look at Jesus is, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we ready? Are we ready to follow this Christ to where he may lead us? It's the challenge. The God who came in the flesh, the God who died on the cross for our sins, the God who conquered sin and death and rose from the grave, the God who gives life to anybody who would call on him, the God who would give his Holy Spirit as a down payment for eternity to us, that God is calling us to obedience to him. And it's not a better self that he's calling us to, but a death to self and an alive in him sort of life. And the challenge is, will we follow him there? In just a few moments, the worship team's going to come, and as they come, we're going to prepare our hearts for the offering. And today, as we prepare for the offering, here is what I'm asking. Uh, One, as always, I'm asking that you would pray for us as a congregation, that we would be about advancing God's kingdom. It's not about Friendship Church. It's all about God. And we want to make sure our mind is stayed on that. So we ask that you would pray with us as we, uh, uh, as we uh, try to steward these funds for God's glory. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is you're considering this, how am I following Jesus? I, I want to encourage you just in a very real way, in a very practical way, to mentally say, Lord, I'm, I'm giving my life to you again. 
this offering as it comes by, as I look at these red buckets, as it passes in front of me, I am offering myself to you again. That's the challenge. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you, and we do thank you and praise you. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be lifted up and exalted, Lord. We pray, Almighty God, that this offering would be sweet to you because this offering is not really about finances as much as it's about offering ourselves to you again. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to reach down to help others out. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to remain grounded without our heads up in the clouds, but rather uh, right where you've called us to be, not rejecting it, not being embarrassed because of it, but receiving it as a gift that you've given us as a stand, as a platform that we can stand firm on to reach down and help others for your glory. Bless this offering, Lord, for your kingdom, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.